This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. everyone, this is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spiritual Podcast on the Be Here Now Network, and I am exceptionally excited to have a very special guest on the show today, Mr. Ira Israel. Hi, Ira. How are you doing? Hey, Chris. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. So let me uh, tell the audience just a little bit about you before we jump into our conversation. We're going to talk about your incredible book with uh, New World Library, whom I love, How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult. Um, but so yeah, so Ira Israel is the author of How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, a licensed marriage and family therapist and professional clinical counselor. Ira graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and holds advanced degrees in psychology, philosophy, and religious studies. His DVD series, including A Beginner's Guide to Happiness and Mindfulness for Depression, along with his sold-out Esalon workshops, have given him a wide international following. He lives in Santa Monica, California, and you can visit him online at www.iraisrael.com. And for anyone listening on the Be Here Now network, uh, just scroll down and we'll have that link there. Um, so now that we have gotten that business out of the way again, Ira, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Chris. So let's start out. Let's let's jump right into this book, a very important book, um, one that, uh, you know, you and I were chatting. And just to let listeners know, I mean, this is a highly praised book um, from people like Marianne Williamson to Sting, Reverend Michael, Bernard Beckwith, Jack Cornfield, Noah Levine. Helen Fielding, Jayutal. I mean, the list goes on and on. You've got some fans. We can say that. Um, and it's well-deserved. It's, it's, it's a great read. So, uh, you know, let's start with just some basic, simple stuff. You know, if, if you can tell us about the title of your book, How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, and then maybe, you know, tell us a little bit about your story and what inspired you to, to write the book. Sure. So probably about 13, 14 years ago, I noticed this, epidemic in our culture the first one you know depression and then um, the second one anxiety or stress and um, I started just researching it and I went to graduate school for psychology so I wanted to you know find out what was afflicting all these people in our culture and my way of looking at things is always uh, inverted in some capacity and so instead of looking for some as I say in the book some rogue gene for that Americans you know suffer from for depression or anxiety I just started to look at our culture um, you know everything that we consider to be normal there's a quote uh, from Marshall McLuhan who says I don't know who discovered water but I doubt it was a fish mm -hmm. so what I wanted to do is try to just analyze the water that we're swimming in and the, 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 the systems that we think are normal, capitalism, science, religion, all the things that we consider to be normal, romantic love, and just see if there were unintended ramifications that were you know, resulting in what we are um, pathologizing today as depression yeah. and anxiety. Right. Wow. I mean... So very important work, and it sounds like you're very passionate about it. So, you know, how about you yourself? You know, like what led you into this this field, this exploration? You know, how young? I mean, I know you mentioned earlier, but like, 
you know, if, if you could talk a little bit more about that and then what from there led you into actually writing the book itself. So um, I grew up in Connecticut near you and um, uh, January 6, 1985, uh, there was a car accident and I was in the passenger seat yeah. and I had my face blown off my head and my leg shattered into Jeez. hundreds of pieces. And in, I, after two years uh, in and out of surgery, I went on a quest that I didn't know I was going on a, at the time, but it started with studying philosophy. The questions, you know, who am I? What am I doing on planet Earth? And I just delved into really Nietzsche and Wittgenstein and really just wanted to learn what in our culture, Western civilization, you know, how these questions were answered. So I moved to Paris. I started studying uh, art and literature, film and music. And um, when I came back to the United States, um, I had made a pit stop in, in Thailand and I got hurt. Uh, I, I crashed into a door frame with my head and there were no, uh, it was on Koh Samui, it was 1994, there were no um, hospitals on the island or anything, and uh, my friend and I stumbled upon this woman, and I was kind of like passing out, and the woman said, let me heal you. And I said, no thank you, like I don't believe in witchcraft. <laughs> and my friend was like, go ahead, I wanna see her heal you. You know, there, you don't have any options, you have a concussion, you know. So uh, she laid me down on this table, and she just put her hands over me and did some Reiki, and in short, my whole paradigm was shifted because, uh, you know, the, the wound that I had, the gas in my head was actually cauterized in some way. And, um, you know, it just inverted my whole understanding of the, uh, of, of the world, of, you know, our paradigm of science. Sure. And it started to, I started to think like, wow, you know, me, if, if, what is this thing, you know? And so I started studying Buddhism, Hinduism and Kabbalah for eight years. So the interesting thing is that after the car accident for eight years, I started studying philosophy. Yeah. And then I got hurt in Thailand again, and I started studying all spirituality, and mm. I ended up going back for a, um, the second uh, graduate degree in Hinduism, Kabbalah, and Buddhism, mostly studying the history of yoga and the history of Buddhism, mindfulness. And then um, about eight years later, I got into a very tormentous relationship, and that got me studying psychology. So mm -hmm. it's a, so I studied that for eight years, and then you know took that graduate degree, and now I'm a psychotherapist. But the interesting thing is, if you looked at my life from the outside for those 25 years, you would probably say, "Oh, Ira, he's lost. Like he's just wandering around cafes in Paris reading Sartre," mm -hmm. or "Oh, Ira, like what is he doing in graduate school when he's 30 studying Buddhism?" I'm like what a waste right. or like what is he doing in yoga teacher training? What is he doing in India? And in, you know studying at the Shivananda retreat. What is he doing? Like it just didn't make any sense and then I was teaching at Rodney Yee's yoga studio in Piedmont and um, It was it was exactly 25 years and uh, a woman had come into the class and her hands went down on the mat and I watched her back open up and I just I <laughs> It sounds ridiculous to say, but I kind of like just heard a voice that said, now's the time to start teaching. And, and I, and I put an ad on Craigslist that afternoon and I, it just came to me yoga for depression and anxiety. And, um, I just made this DVD series, Mindfulness for Depression, Mindfulness for Anxiety, Beginner's Guide to Mindfulness Meditation. And I, it, it really just, set me on this path of teaching. And it's, it's super interesting to me because I've been writing for about 30 years. And, um, uh, you know, it's my vocation and my calling. Like I, I write in blood, you know, I, like, like Nietzsche said, I really feel just um, like I'm like there's symphonies like flowing in me and they come out in, in words. Uh, mm -hmm. when, it, when it flows, it flows. And the other times I'm just sitting around reading, waiting to build inspiration. But um, but the universe really has been compelling me to to teach. So I've been at the Esalen Institute for about six years and I, I, I taught mindfulness to psychotherapists and doctors and psychologists for a couple of years. And um, now the books come out. And so um, I, right now I'm just totally open to see what's next. I love it. You know, I really appreciate what you just said about writing, too. Um, you know, I'm often asked and, and I'll be, you know, very transparent that even though I have two books out, a third coming out uh, with Simon and Schuster, it's like I still have a hard time calling myself a writer. 
because uh, I, I didn't go to school for it. I never took a writing class. Um, you know, I look at like Bukowski and Thompson and Thoreau and mm-hmm. Burroughs. And, you know, these are the people, uh, Chuck Polyanuk, like uh, Klosterman. These are the guys that I personally really appreciate. I read their stuff and I'm like, they're writers. But what I love about what you just said was that, you know, when I, I, I you know, not verbatim, but something to the effect of when it flows, it's there and when not like you're reading and, and going about your day. And, uh, you know, the reason I'm commenting on that is because I'm often asked, you know, tips about writing. And um, I was actually speaking last year. It was this was a trip for me. Right. I was at my old high school. I got invited back to go give a talk in the auditorium to the whole school. I'm in recovery personally for addiction and recovery or addiction, uh, uh, alcohol and drug addiction. Um, And so, you know, there's this huge epidemic, which is obviously sweeping the country with opiates and uh, Mm -hmm. very tragic state of affairs. And uh, this small rural town, East Haddam, in the middle of kind of nowhere, Connecticut, um, has lost, you know, a number of people there. So, you know, I graduated in 96 and I was the punk rock skateboarding troublemaker that was always in detention or in school <laughs> suspension. So, you know, it's like 20 years later, they like invite me to come speak. Like, you know, I'm, I think they threw a party after I graduated. Like we finally got rid of this guy. But anyways, I just share that because so I, you know, I, I give a talk and it, and it went well. And it was really it was actually healing for me, to be honest, because I definitely held a lot of resentment towards them. But um, I was speaking in some of the creative writing classes they had afterwards in the afternoon, and a student asked me about that, and I gave a very similar answer to what you gave, you know, because often you'll hear writers say, you need to write every day or write X amount of words, and cool, man, if that's what works for you, that's what works for you. But I remember, you know, saying, like I said, basically what you just said, I'm like, I write when I'm inspired to write. And if I'm not, I don't force it. It's similar, like I'm a musician. And if I'm trying to write a song, if it's not coming out naturally, I put the guitar down or, you know, I stop playing the drums and I'll come back to it when I feel inspired. But man, the look on the teacher's face when I said that, (laughs) I will never forget. It was like mortification. And so I had to quickly, you know, um, say, unless, of course, your teacher gives you an assignment or whatever. But um, anyways, I just wanted to, to mention that because anyone listening, I know there's a lot of aspiring writers that listen to this show. And um, and that's one piece of advice I'm glad you said. And I just wanted to kind of echo as well. Um, yeah. For me, it's all about if I can jump in, it's, it's all about creating the, found, the foundation um, for for inspiration. And it's funny because I really love Elizabeth Gilbert's TED talk on muse and creativity and Mm. genius. And, um, you know, she claims that she's a mule and she just has to get up every day and slog it out. And that doesn't work for me at all. For me, like for me, I I do my best writing in yoga classes, in um, at museums, at the symphony. Like I don't, I don't try to write basically I, I, I mean, I don't know how esoteric this sounds, but like I receive, you know, I'm just, I'm the, I'm, I'm the conduit. I'm yeah. not like, and you know, and then, so it's the same thing. You know, I always ask people, you know, wh- where do songs come from? Right. Because you know, where you, you're, you're sitting there, you basically, Mozart would say he received uh, symphonies sure. and uh, you know, so it's just, it's a way, it's your paradigm, you know, either you're an atheist and you don't believe there, there's a higher force and you're the, the, the genius or, you know, for me, I think that my gift is aggregating, yeah. meaning, you know, like uh, studying Buddhist philosophy and then studying Western philosophy and studying literature and studying politics and then combining it uh, all together in some little cauldron. <laughs> You're preaching to the choir. We, you know, I think we might have been separated at birth. Like that's the uh, very much the approach I take. That's why teachers like Ram Das and Ken Wilber have been so important in my life because they were some of the earlier teachers I was introduced to. And, you know, they, even though Ram Das is in the uh, Hindu lineage under Maharaji, mm-hmm. Ken Wilber does the integral thing. He wouldn't, I, I don't think he would call himself anything specific, but, you know, they, they incorporate all of the great wisdom traditions and mm-hmm. these incredible teachings. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, I can see one of my bookshelves right now are talking and I'm just smiling because it's like, like you said, everything from like Western mystic Christianity to Vedanta to Zen Buddhism and there's such a wealth 
of and, just inspiration and treasure in there, and you know? I, one other funny thing is, after I did get hurt in Thailand, yeah. I was so um, blown away that I ended up at Duke University, the Rhine Research Institute, studying parapsychology in 1996. <laughs> and now, and now, and it's funny because um, there's a school out here, USM, and the founder, Ron Holnick, he says his entrance into spirituality was through parapsychology. And, it's, you know, we have a paradigm, and that, is, that paradigm is science. And for me, just in general, during the Enlightenment, our culture threw the baby out with the bathwater, yeah. meaning that if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. So, you know, like out here in, in, in Los Angeles, everyone goes for acupuncture. Yeah. If you try to explain the meridian system to, you know, a physicist in the middle of the country or a, a, a doctor, you know, they would consider it witchcraft. Right. But, you know, like we're, we're like, I, I go, <laughs> I go for acupuncture. It works, you know, yeah. so. It's just another paradigm. So that's what I'm interested in is, um, you know, enlarging people's toolboxes so that they can get new perspectives and not be dogmatic and prejudiced and, you know, fight, have to kill other people because they don't believe the same things as we do. Yeah. Oh, I love it, man. I couldn't have said it any better myself. Um, we are absolutely on the same page. So <laughs> right. good stuff. So let's jump a little bit back into the book. Um you know, one of the things I really appreciated, and as I read um, a lot of this, it it reminded me of. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Gabor Mate. He's a, mm -hmm. a, a yeah celebrated yeah. addiction expert, and I've been fortunate to speak with him a few times. And you know, he talks quite a bit about the significant impact our childhood plays in our lives, and especially those uh, that become addicted, and not just to drugs or yeah. alcohol, but you know, food, sex, shopping, gambling a myriad of, of things. Um, you know, but in your book, you talk about, um, the critical and judgmental voices that, and how, you know, so many people that basically have them because they originated in their heads from the wounded child within. So mm -hmm. I'd love for you to, to elaborate a bit on that and sure. talk, uh, hear what you have to say. There's a beautiful quote by Jacques Lacan. He says, language thinks me. So our mind tricks us into thinking that it knows things and, you know, it, it has an understanding. But really, you know, um, language is a cage. It's not it's not infinite. Right. And also the way we raise children in our culture is akin to the way we tame pets. And we do that through um, negative languaging, you know, don't run out into the street, don't jab, jab your sister with a fork, don't have sex, don't do this, don't do that. And so what happens is 35 years later, um, those thoughts from childhood are, assimil are assimilated. So the mind has a negativity bias naturally in order to keep us safe. And I argue in the book that the mind's primary goal is to try to, um, you know, uh, futilely stave off future traumas. You know, we were traumatized. Things happened to us, you know, going down the birth canal, anything, uh, the, the individuation process uh, for babies, uh, gaining that understanding that they're not at one with the mother is very trauma, traumatic. Right. So, you know, everything that happens, the child has to, you know, learn how to react to. And so later in life, you know, when we have, um, you know, in 12-step in, in meetings in the program all the time, you hear, you know, um, negative self-talk. You know, there's yeah, an epidemic yeah. ne negative self-talk. So when I have patients in the office, you know, when they're saying, yeah, but I'll only be happy when I have this or I do that or whatever, I'll say, whose voice is that? You know, and we look for that critical, you know, primary caregiver, you know, a teacher or older sibling or something. And then um, I'll, I'll always ask, like in my groups, like, were you born with that voice? Like, where does that where does that negativity bias, uh, you know, come from in terms of language, the way you're the way you the way you talk to yourself? You know, that's that's really the the problem in our culture. And that's why I, I, I analyze capitalism so much and the American dream, because it's really that con competitiveness that that is is I don't know. I mean, it was probably great 200 years ago. But right now, you know, pitting, you know, 14 year olds against each other for for grades and things like that. Yeah. I'm not I'm not certain that it's it's getting the, the <laughs> it's making the happiest or most, um, you know, integrated people. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, and, and so something else I think that kind of segues into this in, in a way is that, 
you you talk about and you and I prior to this conversation, you know, you were talking about um, how important authenticity is. And that is something that I write about at length in my own books and in my talks and workshops. And so, you know, obviously happiness as adults, um, you know, the, the role our childhood, uh, you know, or our experiences as children plays a role in that. So, you know, can you talk about sure. that and authenticity and relation to happiness and, um, mm-hmm. you know, just how it affects our way of being as adults in the world? So the only thing that correlates strongly with happiness is the quality of our intimate relationships. Mm. And the only thing that correlates strongly with the quality of our intimate relationships is authenticity. So the problem is that, as Winnicott says, and I'm paraphrasing, we develop a false self in order to survive our childhoods. Mm. Or more precisely, we develop a facade in order to get our psychological and emotional needs met the best we could as children. And we should be happy with whatever tools we develop. Maybe, you know, you thought uh, being rich or being, or, you know, looking a certain way or, you know, acting a certain way, you know. But whatever facade or false self we developed then is probably hindering us from getting the authentic love that we crave as adults. It's a, it's a different set of tools. So again, in all my courses and all this book, I'm trying to just enlarge in people's toolboxes. There's a great quote, I'm sure you've heard it a million times by Abraham Maslow, who says, when the only tool you have is a problem, I'm so sorry, when the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem resembles a nail. So, again, the, our way of reframing things to accept our, our past and try to eliminate the, the prejudices, fears, expectations, resentments in particular that our minds create in order to survive our childhoods and, you know, to really um, analyze them at a certain time in our life when, you know, after college, when we're totally individuated and we can sit there and we could say, okay, who do I want to be? What kind of life do I want to lead? And, you know, for me, in terms of looking at what we learn through popular culture about, like, the cool people, Justin Bieber or <laughs> Spears or whatnot, you know, if, if everybody uh, imitates them, then we have a society of dysfunctional alcoholics, which actually we, we, we do. Right. So, you know, we need to have um, uh, more enlightening icons in our culture. And, uh, and we need to inspire the younger people to, you know, be their higher selves and not be the cool, sarcastic assholes and the, you know, the rebellious kids. I mean, there's a place for rebellion and I talk about that extensively in the book, but you know, um, if you just become against something, you know, that that's inauthentic also. So the, yeah. the line, yeah, the line that I use is we become what we love and we become what we hate and both are inauthentic. Mm-hmm. So, um, there's a there's a quote from a book, um, and I and, and and I'm not forgetting the author's name, but it goes like this: um, One brother turns to another brother and says, um, "Why did you grow up to be an alcoholic?" And um, he says, "Because dad was an alcoholic." And the other brother says, "Well, why didn't you grow up to be uh, an alcoholic?" And he says, "Because dad was an alcoholic." Yeah. Meaning, again, we see things when we're young, and. We either want to gain the approval, acceptance, and love of our, let's say, alcoholic father, so we become alcoholics, or as a means of individuating and becoming our own selves, we do the opposite, so we become teetotalers. And what I'm saying is that there comes a point in life when you, when you can look at who you're becoming in terms of um, all the influences when you were young, and you can decide and yeah. say, like, well, you know, that worked for me when I was 14 or 16 or in college or whatever, and I don't, and I don't actually want to be that person anymore. I can, I can shed that. Yeah. Or you know, so that's that's what I'm really, um, hopefully, empowering people to do in this book and inspiring them to be authentic by analyzing all the things in the first six chapters that I, I think make people inauthentic. You yeah. Know? Well, I love that you said that, and I and I'm glad you brought up rebellion as well because yes, there are two sides to that, you know. In, a, in my own subjective experience, you know, being turned on to punk rock and hardcore music and underground hip hop when I was like 13, 14, that that was 
I didn't recognize it at the time, but that honestly, as crazy as it sounds, was my beginning of spiritual awakening, you know, because that started to unplug me from the proverbial matrix. You know, I I wasn't listening to what the cool kids were listening to. Like on the weekends when there were school dances, I at that point I was playing in bands, you know, playing around New England. And, you know, so that my friends are doing that and I'm doing my own thing and learning to be my individualistic self. Mm-hmm. Um Albeit there was a, you know, a lot of facade in that because I'm, you know, I'm vegan and I'm trying to like talk about ethics and, and political stuff, which, you know, honestly, I didn't know what the hell I was talking about, but, um, you know, I was trying and, um, and I'm grateful today, but you also said there are things that you shed as you grow up and I couldn't agree more. Like some of that still absolutely serves me to this day. Some of it doesn't. And so, you know, I have to constantly keep revisiting my own paradigm and checking what is still serving me, what isn't serving me. And, you know, I work, I do a lot of work with a, uh, a wonderful, um, youth, uh, mental health and healing facility here in Connecticut. And mm-hmm. it's, um, boys and girls or young adults, I should say ages 14 to 20. And it's, you know, equal parts heartbreaking and heart filling. You know, when I go there, um, these are young adults that have already attempted suicide or you just see the cuts on, it's more girls than boys, but it's just severe cutting depression alcoholism drug addiction and and of course a very rebellious nature um and you know i feel so fortunate to go in there and you know just be able to share things that we've been talking about but meet them in a way that you know not not all of them listen and and i understand that some of them are pissed and i get it you know i was an angry teenager too um but you know being able to go in there and share simple breathing techniques or meditation practices or, you know, things of that nature. Um, you know, I actually met a kid. I've been doing that for about three years. I was doing a workshop up in Portland, Maine about two years ago. And so this was a year after, and this kid came up to me. I didn't remember him, but he's like, Hey, I was at this workshop you did down when I was at this facility and just want to let you know, I'm doing great. And it was like, wow, man, just to know even one kid, you know, I don't yeah. know how he's doing now, but that meant the world to me. So anyways, sp- speaking of that, like I, you do talk about meditation um, mm-hmm. and kind of bringing, reining it all back in with punk rock and, and you know, spirituality and meditation. Um, you know, we have a mutual friend, Noah Levine, who, you know, he's a, a punk rocker and uh, a, a very well-respected and highly celebrated Buddhist scholar and teacher. Um, but, you know, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the role meditation plays in all of this, you know, in, in becoming an adult and working with our childhood wounds and or just in general, whatever thoughts you have on that. So as I said, I started this book by my interest in depression and anxiety. And the one thing that I found um, in studying consciousness in the mind, and you know, some people might disagree with this, but I say that depression relates to thoughts about the past. Anxiety relates to thoughts about the future. The past is dead and gone. It doesn't exist. Yeah. And the future doesn't yet exist. So how can depression and anxiety exist? So I'm looking at consciousness and, again, what the mind is mandated to do. What's the job of the human mind? All right? and, I'm, and I'm saying that things happened in our past that are traumatizing, and we basically you know, uh, project them into the future to try to, to stop them. Uh, from happening again. So for me, the role of meditation and for and yoga is just a moving meditation for me. So they're sure. one and the same. It doesn't matter which which will you know, you just have to find what works for you. Yeah. So meditation um, and this is in the mindfulness tradition allows us to disidentify with our thoughts and and get some insight into them. So, you know, the phrase you are not your thoughts is similar to what I said before is and language thinks me. I mean, these are just tools that we use to communicate. And yet, you know, consciousness has become so detrimental that there, there are so many people self-harming and, you know, um, even just living uh, destructively yeah. and having, you know, dysfunctional relationships. So I really think that we have to look at our pasts and see, you know, um, 
how our mind assimilated all those things and how we choose to react to those events in our lives. And then, you know, like uh, be realistic and accepting about who we are today and, and, you know, just want to always be our highest selves and be loving and cultivate loving relationships for our future. Mm. So, yeah. so meditation is the, is the one tool where you can just drop into the present moment and as Ram Dass says, you know, be here now and, you know, stop listening to those voices telling you the woulda, coulda, shoulda, didn't about the past, creating these resentments because the way, you know, I stated in the book is you're only causing your own suffering when you want things in the past to have transpired otherwise. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, I, I, I say in the book, if you came home and saw your wife or husband or kid trying to shove a square peg in a round hole, you know, you would stop them. Right. And yet this, this is what your mind does all day long. Yeah. Right. If, oh, I'd be happy if I had married this person or if I didn't marry this person or if I became a lawyer, or if I was famous, if I was this, if this happened, if that happened. But that's not reality. So, right. you know, how to accept reality as it is. It, it will, will help um, stymie any types of suffering. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate what you said about yoga as a moving meditation. Um, you know, I'm often asked, you know, what kind of meditation should I do? And my answer is what, whatever kind works for you. You know, exactly. there's there's no there's, reason people can Seven can't. billion types of yeah, meditation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I do, of course, suggest if, if someone's able to, to, to have a formal sitting practice, even if it's just five minutes a day. I mean, hopefully they get up to 20, 45 minutes, whatever. But, you know, for me at least, I find that that's what helps root me. And then mm-hmm. as I go about my day, like... Uh, you mentioned the movement of yoga. I skateboard. So when I get on my skateboard and meditation, absolutely. Like I'm not always, but I'm mindful of my foot hitting the, you know, the sidewalk as I'm kicking, Mm -hmm. coming back onto the board, you know, doing a trick, whatever. Well, I don't do many tricks. I'm, I'm older these days. It's more of just kick, push coast, but it's still like a moving meditation and life, Mm -hmm. you know, all of life can be a meditation. I've, I've written about having actual, this isn't meditation, but like uh, completely like non-dualistic, um, almost like a mystical union experience at, uh, it happened three times actually, once at a Van Halen concert, once at a Motorhead concert, and once at a Slayer concert. And mm-hmm. I'm yeah, I mean, how crazy, and the craziest one was Slayer to me because, you know, here are these like upside down crosses and flames bursting and, you know, they're they're singing, you know, they're slayer songs and and i'm still a fan of theirs and and it's just like all of a sudden like i didn't hear anything it was just a sea of love literally like and uh and i attribute that to the fact that you know staying open-minded and and having a meditation practice and just being open uh, allowing your consciousness you know to expand and and doing these practices that help you to cultivate that so you can something as simple as washing your hands you know, the awareness of the water hitting your hands. If you are there in that moment, to me, that's meditation. That's mindfulness, you know. So um, it's available to us at all times. It's just a matter of, you know, if, if we're open for it or to it and doing the things and using the tools like you keep saying that can bring us there. Um, so thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Um, I also wanted to talk, I mean, there's, there's so much I want to talk to you about. It's unfortunately we only have an hour, but we still have a good amount of time left. Um, one thing, uh, and this I found, you know, I find is very important because I did do a couple of, uh, internships with substance abuse counseling and Mm -hmm. a huge issue, uh, for many people was with their parents and whether, uh, or family members, but a lot of cases was parents And, uh, you know, you talk about how it's important for us to be cognizant of the of the dynamics that we have or had with our parents growing up. So, you know, I would love for you to share a little bit about that. Sure. I'll talk about it in two ways. Firstly, um, as I said, we become what we love. We become what we hate. I mean, we 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 see the attributes and the way our parents act and um Normally, what I found in our culture is that there's usually or I don't know, it's hard to generalize, but sometimes you'll find um, 
a parent was aloof or emotionally withholding, and sometimes uh, you know the parent uh, there's a parent who's smothering or enabling, mm. and you really just have to be cognizant of of you know those dynamics when you're entering in relationships later in life because um, the way we think about those things today in terms of attachment theory is. Um, you're going to either believe that the world is a secure place and you can securely attach to people and they're not going to break your heart and stab you in the back. Right. Or, you know, um, if you have one of those um, types of insecure attachment, you're avoidant or um, uh, ambivalent or disorganized. And, and actually, I think that you can trace um, disorganized attachment in a baby to borderline personality disorder as an adult. Mm. And, you know, these are all just, you know, things that we're doing as children to try to get our needs met. And we really don't understand the world. And, you know, these dynamics. And, and I actually think that this also correlates with our beliefs about money and um, and and founda- our, our foundation in life. You know, we have this understanding of the world like we have these theories and then i think that humans spend the rest of their lives looking for facts that rise to meet their theories i mean it's really hard mm. to 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 have your you know paradigm blown open when you're 20 or 30 or 40 years old because i i think that those attachment dynamics and your basic understanding of how the world is operating is this subconscious thing that is um, inculcated into you or you, that you assimilate as a baby. So that's one thing that would be, and I'll go into this beautiful quote by um, Harville Hendricks. He says, the subconscious purpose of marriage in America is to enable us to complete our childhoods. Mm-hmm. Our parents had deficits. Those deficits wounded us. Those wounds became defense mechanisms, and those defense mechanisms became our personalities. And we'll always be attracted to people who can replicate the dynamics from one or more of our primary caregivers. And the funny thing is, I was sitting with Marianne Williamson um, uh, about a month ago, and she said, and if they can't replicate the dynamics of one or more of our primary caregivers, We'll train them to. Mm. So it's it's really fascinating because I think that there's a wounded child in all of us subconsciously oh, yeah. and react, retroactively trying to get the love and approval from people who, I mean, basically, if your mom had migraine, migraines, for instance, right. a child assimilates that, a seven or eight-year-old will assimilate that as there's something wrong with me. Right. Like if I were better, if I were perfect, then mommy wouldn't have these headaches, Right. So cut to, you know, years later when we have what we talked about before that, that negative, that negative self-talk and, you know, you still have, um, these, these emotions, these feelings, you're triggered subconsciously by things happening in your world today. And, and, you know, we just need to be aware of, yeah, it's, and it's funny, it's, it's really about constructing a narrative. Because you, you can't go back and say, oh, this is this was this and this was that. But it's just having a narrative. So for me in the psychotherapy practice, you know, I don't um, do psychoanalysis. I don't I don't believe in excavating someone's entire childhood, but just being able to create a narrative such as uh, my mom was emotionally withholding and my father was enabling, you know, let's say your parents were divorced and they were kind of fighting over you in some ways. They kind of knew one person had to discipline you. The other person was trying to like curry favor because they wanted to spend more time with you. So one would buy presents all the time. The other one would be like, do your homework. You know, there's just certain dynamics that are formed. And, you know, you, I think later in life, you, you kind of, um, you know, are doing these odd dances subconsciously that you that you're not aware of. I can give tons of examples using patients, but I I don't want to. In case any of them are listening, I don't want to uh, identify them. Sure. So the second part of your question pertains to something I say a paradox in the last chapter of the book, where I say um, all children should say that their parents did the best that they could. <clears throat> And all parents should tell their children at some point in time, we could have done better. We could have loved more. And I find that very interesting because what I've found is that when a parent says we did the best we could, it means you're fucked up because you're fucked up. Like we did the best we could. It it invalidates the child's emotional experience. But 
you know, for, for us to harbor grudges at 30 or 40 years old and say, yeah, well, I'm fucked up because my parents were alcoholics or assholes or emotionally withholding or oppressive or whatever, that that does us no good either because that's just a resentment, right. right? So we should just, any at any point in time, a child should say, my parents did the best that they could with the tools that they had given the cultural paradigm. And I love Alice Miller's drama of the gifted child because she really talks about how generations, and I, I think this is only applicable post-World War II, you know, there was this uh, Cold War and, and, and everyone had Hitler in their mind. And, you know, if you were raised in a Jewish family, like there was all this pressure to become a doctor or a lawyer. And then the thing was like, because there could be another Hitler, so you have to become like a powerful person. It, like it, it's nonsensical when, when we look back on it. Right. But you know, we, we, you look at generations and how uh, I think child rearing practices are. You know, they they ebb and flow. So there's there's like there's an oppressive you know parenting style, and then there and then it, it goes to the opposite, the, uh, like a laissez faire parenting style, and that's really fascinating too because I'm 51 years old, and I grew up, or rather. I'm watching, you know, I have in my practice uh, some younger people, and when the parents are totally laissez-faire and let the kids do whatever they want, the kids kind of misinterpret that sometimes subconsciously as my parents don't give a shit about me, they let me do whatever I want. So I say in the book, you know, there's no perfect parent, there's no ideal balance, but you have to learn how to do that dance as a parent. And, you know, there's some wonderful books about conscious parenting and mindful parenting, and you really have to... You know, we're in a time when children have a voice and are allowed to be heard. You know, I grew up in a generation where uh, children were meant to be seen, not heard still. You know, we were we were extensions of our parents. And so um, it's a it's just fascinating psychologically, you know, to to, go ahead. What were you going to say? No, no, I I was just agreeing. Um, Didn't mean to. Yeah, no. Please finish your your. No, 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 because, yeah, so you're, you know, as a parent, you're, you're trying to instill self-discipline and self-esteem. And, you know, I make the uh, joke in the book, I think uh, babies want to um, eat when they're hungry, uh, sleep when they're tired, poop when they want to poop and uh, play when they're playful. And what we do is our school system and, you know, we put them on schedules. And Mm. so trying to make them into productive members of society and we're telling them to sleep when they're playful and play when they're hungry. And, you know, we, we you even have like, you know, in the school system, uh, you know, you have poop breaks or, you know, you have a, you know, <laughs> right. like, it's just like, it's so weird to like, you, you know, try to um, compare that with a, you know, you're, you're like a pet or something. And we're really, we really, um, you know, we have to take a look, very strong look at our educational system, what it was designed to do 300 years ago. And now, you know, living in the culture that we're living in with the privileges that we have, do we, you know, do, does this one size fit all educational system work or are we creating generations of depressed and anxious people? Mm. So well said. Yeah. And, and, you know, something I just wanted to touch on briefly in regards to my own situation, um, you know, what you're saying about parents, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 39, about to be 40 next year. And my mom, I mean, my parents did the best they could. They had me when they were 21. Um, they were very young. My dad grew up in foster care. He had no father figure his entire life. Um, you know, so they they did the best they could. And to this day, my mother uh, still holds guilt, still blames herself for my experience with addiction. And, you know, I've tried to tell her time and again, I understand you did the best that you could. But I'm an adult, just like you were saying, you know, like I, I have to handle my own shit now. I'm, I'm, right. I'm a, a grown ass man. Like you've shared many a quote and I'll share one in return, uh, different genre, but one of my favorite old school hip hop acts, the far side, you know, they have a line where it's uh, something like there comes a time in every man's life when he's got to grow up and handle shit on his own. And, you know, every time I hear that line, it just, I think of myself because sure, I could have played victim and, you know, I was, I, fortunately I was never raped or molested and didn't experience any of the horrific things that many people do, um, that lead them to various forms of addiction or trauma or, you know, whatever the case may be. But, um, yeah. So anyways, I, I, I really appreciate your sentiments on that. And, uh, and, and again, I couldn't agree more. And you mentioned, uh, resentment, 
uh, right. in, in there. And that's something you talk at length about in your book. So I'd love if, uh, if you don't mind talking sure. a bit about resentment and the role it plays in, you know, our destructive behaviors in life. Well, the last chapter I believe is called how to own your life. So your mind does this thing where it says, well, you know, if this didn't happen, I'd be different. Or if my parent was someone else, blah, blah, blah. And there's a beautiful quote. I was sitting with Rick Hansen and he said, you can't pull all the weeds in the garden, but you can plant flowers. Mm -hmm. So um, learning how to replace the resentments, the woulda, coulda, shoulda, didn'ts that your mind creates in order to protect you with gratitude and acceptance is the is the the best we can do and then the other section of the book is on atonement or at one mint and um this is a quote from lily tomlin uh, she says um forgiveness means giving up all hope of having a better past mm-hmm. so as soon as we accept who we are and, and what brought us to this point then we can start to, you know, move forward in a loving way and and stop our own suffering. And, you know, it's funny because we both talked about Noah. Um, so the, he had this beautiful thing a couple of weeks ago, and it ended up like um, coming uh, into my life again in an article on Jay-Z in the New York Times last mm-hmm. Sunday. Because Noah, um, and, and, you know, I'm kind of paraphrasing, maybe I put it into my own words, yeah. but, but he basically said, um, when like couples are having an argument, one could say to the other one, and this is my interpretation, um, why are you pointing your suffering at me? Mm. And I really thought that that was really interesting, a, a way to raise consciousness around like, like, why are you fighting about the, the, whether there's gas in the car, or who washed the, the dishes or the, t- you know, you're, you're a loving couple. Why are you, you know, fighting about minutia? And so um, there was this article and there's this interview with Jay-Z and he talks about when he goes into bars and and he sees, you know, those tough guys and that phrase, you looking at me, you know, what are you looking at? Right. So instead of, you know, starting a fist fight, because that's like, like, I'm looking at you, motherfucker, what the fuck do you think I'm looking at? And then you punch the person or they punch you. Like, instead, he he learned to show up, he learned through psychotherapy, interestingly, Mm -hmm. to show up compassionately, because he said, what he what he heard in this reframing is that these men are suffering. Yeah. And and they don't want you to see their suffering. They don't want the witness to their suffering. So yeah. they 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 turn it into that anger. Like you looking at me? What are you looking at? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And instead to just say, just be compassionate, you know. So I mean that's um yeah, that's why I think that um, you know, we can tie this all back to his holiness, uh, because I really feel that the that we're watching our society implode. I don't know if this is going out on a ledge or not, but like yeah, we're watching all the things that we believe in um, that have brought us here. You know, um, there's a the, the quote by Thomas Kuhn from the 60s, uh, pa- that paradigm shift every 25 years. I think in our information age, the paradigms are shifting every five or six years. Like when I was growing up in Connecticut, if you tried to explain to my grandmother that a black man would be president and gay people could marry and marijuana would be legal, she would, thought, she would think you were from another planet. Right, <laughs> right. right. So, you know, we're watching these things happen and, you know, we'll see what happens with the stock market and Bitcoin and North Korea and all these variables. And, you know, we really just have to, um, you know, people like you and I and Noah, like we're team transition. So we have to really cultivate non-reactivity and, and, you know, because there's going to be some weird shit that happens. I, (laughs) I don't know what it's going to be, but like, you know, whether it's a a plague or, you know, I I can't tell, but we should expect the unexpected in terms of tsunamis or, I mean, look at the, look what happened last week. I'm sitting here on Wednesday in Santa Monica, I walk out and there's soot all over my front lawn and I I left the bathroom window open on Wednesday morning. My entire bathroom is covered in fucking ashes, right? It's awful. Yeah. No, no, it's insane. Like that, what, what humanity, what humanity has done to the planet earth, to Gaia. And, and, you know, and so we're, we're, we're being hemorrhaged off of the planet through these natural disasters. Yeah. And we have to take responsibility for our own, you know, um, short-sightedness our own uh you know way of 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 thinking that like we have the right to extinguish 55 million species of animals every year we right. have, you know we, we kill a, a billion cows uh I, I don't know it's 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 a year two billion pigs like we're just murdering and murdering and murdering and decimating and fracking and doing all these things and thinking that these things are normal 
And I'm, you know, take a look at the, at the, at what the, what the earth is informing us. Right. And maybe we can make some healthier long-term decisions for our kids. Couldn't agree more. You know, people take, I mean, I'm saying the obvious, but take this planet for granted. And many people don't even recognize the fact that it is, it's alive. You know, it is alive. There's a reason it's called mother earth, you know, and the earth will be just fine without us, but we will not be fine without it, you know? So show some goddamn respect essentially is what I'm getting to. Um, but yes, it's, it's been actually quite frightening these past few years watching the weather and, and things that are happening and global warming and the fact mm-hmm. that now we have this jackass, you know, as our 45th president, not to get political, but Hey, it is what it is. That's my feelings on it. And he is obviously, you know, just kind of, pushing us in this terrible direction um in every possible fucking way but um you know you're I right think, i honestly think that we have to look at it in terms of a culture war mm. so we the, the conservatives are trying to conserve the white male judeo-christian hegemony yep. that they've enjoyed that we have enjoyed for the past two thousand years and that's included slavery that's included the holocaust even like like just white males we're, you know, yeah, we sent people to the moon, but in general, if you look at all the murders in the 20th century, probably 90% of the 100 million murders were committed by white males. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's the conservatives. And then we have progressives, and, you know, every human being fears the unknown. Yeah. So the, as soon as we start to reframe the culture war as the conservatives, as you know, they're fearful and myopic. So they're trying to go backward because they enjoyed power. People, you know, that's the main thesis of the book is that power corrupts. And we had all these regulations in the 50s and 60s and 70s up till Ronald Reagan that really accounted for that um, subconscious weirdness in our in our programming that, you know, you give people power and they abuse it. And now we just have like everything's been unbridled and, you know, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. There's just more and more disparity. And, you know, at some point in time, you know, like, I'm sure the people right before the French Revolution were just like, no, no, no. Like, let's just go out and hang out in our gardens and, and drink tea and have cake. And, you know, they were surprised. But like in our culture, the, you know, I, I always thought that when um George Bush was trying to privatize uh, Medicare, mm. like that would be the end. Because if, if old people like, had, who had faith and had worked for 50 years um, and had all their money just one day like gone because of a stock market correction or something, like if you worked, there was, there was actually one incident where Delta Airlines um, went, they had a choice between bankruptcy or um, eliminating like the 401k programs for their pilots. And so they went to the union and there were people who were pilots for Delta Airlines for 50 years and put away money every day. And there was probably like a couple of people who woke up when they were 65 years old and got a call from their union that said, you know, that million dollars that you put away for over the last 50 years of being a pilot. Well, we're sorry to inform you, but it's all gone. So fucked. no, no, but that's the way, you know, we, that's the society we live in. Yeah. Um, so yeah. we have to, we, you know, we, we're not in this, um, we don't believe in this interdependence. We believe in, we're still that, that antiquated, like survival of the fittest mentality. You know, it's a, our society is a zero sum game. So yeah. if, 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 if you have it, I can't have it, yeah. but you know, that's bullshit. Yeah. I was just watching a video, um, that somebody, a friend of mine posted, um, from Jimmy Kimmel the other night. And, you know, he's talking about the chip program, um, which is money, you know, essentially that goes towards children that have various ailments, diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his own son just underwent a, a heart surgery. I think he has two more. And it was, it was really touching. I mean, literally brought tears to my eyes and I'm not ashamed to say that. Like it was a very touching plea to the, the powers that be, you know, do not, please do not cut this funding. And, you know, it's it's literally like money over life. And right. I'm just sitting here thinking to myself, how do these people live with themselves? How do they go to sleep at night? Like, how is this okay? What what <laughs> happened to them in their lives that like they can do this and be okay? You know, like 
you know, it's it's totally surreal to me. And the funny thing is, I don't know what your life is like, but I get um, I'm not going to name names, but we all know who I'm talking about. Like there's people out there who, you know, you blog for them and they you're like, OK, well, you know, kind of, you know, you're a billion dollar company. And how about paying writers? Yeah. And they're like, they'll basically their argument is, darling, like um, I'm giving you promotion. Yeah. And so, you know, I always write back. Well, I actually cannot pay my mortgage with promotion i have right. to pay my mortgage in dollars yes so like why do you not pay writers like how can you, how do those people who i mean is that not some form of slavery or exploit yeah. exploitation yeah i mean i mean i mean we have to learn how to interact with these people in a in a humane way so that you know there's just fairness and equity and there's not um there's not that craziness that happens i always think that in terms of the way we negotiate deals it's always a lose-lose situation anytime you negotiate something because everybody has buyer's remorse at some point in time. They, sh- could, they say, oh, I could have gotten it for cheaper or the other person says, oh, I could have gotten more out of them. Right. And I just think that we need to learn how to interact with other people in a much more loving and compassionate and fair manner. Couldn't agree more. I, uh, I, you know, I have to admit when I started blogging, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, it certainly helped in the beginning. Um, you know, I, I also wasn't looking for a book deal at that time. I was just writing about some of my experiences to try to help people. But, you know, now it's to the point where, you know, I have some books out and just like you said, yeah, uh, promotion's nice, but it does not, I have bills. So it's, it's literally been over for me at least two years since I've written for any of the websites I used to, including Huffington Post, like, um, you know, if and it's not that like I'm too good for it, but it's like you said, a form of slavery. Um, there are these sites that are making plenty of money and there is right. no excuse. It, it reminds me of like, I, I don't have the time to play in bands anymore these days, but being in bands and, you know, traveling out of state and, you know, like, oh, here's 10 bucks um, and you can have all the beer you want or whatever. And it's like, great, man, but that's not covering expenses and gas. And, and I know you have the money and. Uh, yeah, you know, so but we have to think of ter- in terms of like livable wage. And we have to really, um, you know, want the, the, the paradigm needs to shift into I can't be great unless you're great. Like, what can I do to facilitate your greatness? Mm-hmm. And when, when I teach at Esalen, I do this. Um, I, I do a meta meditation for the group. And it's fascinating because I'll just I'll get everyone into a circle. There's 100 people. And I'll say, raise your hand if you're the front door of your house is unlocked right now. And it's and there's usually look like one or two people. And then I give the example of like me growing up and with my first apartments in New York City. Um, you know, there would be like six or seven locks. And then there'd be that crow, that crowbar type thing that was in the floor that you would like it would stop a tank. And then in the corner, there'd be a baseball bat. And then in the drawer by your bed, there'd be a gun. Yeah. And like, like our, our, the way we have to protect ourselves yeah. and the fear that we consider to be normal with all of our armed guards and all the things running around, like that is, that, if that's not anxiety provoking, what we consider to be like that other people want the shit that we have. Yeah. So we have to protect ourselves in such a way. Like, so we have to really flip that around so that, we know that all of our neighbors have their needs taken care of and yeah. they don't want our stuff and we can leave our front doors open instead yeah. of like, you know, the, the craziness that we consider to be normal life in terms of, you know, um, all of the protection that we need because we're, we live in this constant state of fear that people want to steal shit from us. Yeah. You know, it, it... I uh, I used to live just like that. I never had a gun, but, you know, always a baseball bat. I've lived in plenty of hoods <laughs> in my day. And actually, I still live like I was joking with my friend uh, Lacey Ann about this. Like she's like, yeah, man, you you live in the hood. And I'm like, I do. It's a it's a very interesting uh, dichotomy here because this one stretch of road I'm on Capitol Ave right near the mm-hmm. capital of Hartford. It's it's come up and it's you know, uh, it's I live in this nice apartment building. But um, it's a refurbished old paper mill factory. But literally, you go one block down across the street, and I, 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 I'm a hood. That's how we grew up. I love walking through there. Um, it just makes me feel at home. I'm that's just how I am. But literally, like you know, you're you're getting uh, almost freaking assaulted with people. You know, like what do you need? What do you need? Like trying to sell you drugs. Um, I, luckily, I've never gotten jumped or you know robbed. But um, 
I, I intentionally don't live with a baseball bat anymore. I literally, I mean, yeah. maybe I could grab a knife out of my drawer for worst case scenario, but I don't want to be that person. You know, exactly. I don't, I don't want to live in that constant state of fear and anxiety. I'm also not naive. I know what happens. I've seen my share of shit for sure. And I'm sure I will continue to that's life, but I love but all, what you said. And also like, it's funny not being attached to things like, like, you know, I have a couple of nice guitars and, yeah, um, same here. and I have a, a scooter, which is, we would be difficult to replace, but like one day I'm going to walk out and it's not going to be there. Yeah. And I've also, I have like a 1983, um, uh, Fender Stratocaster elite, which I've only seen, uh, Clapton and Knopfler play. Wow. It's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful, it's, it weighs as much as the Les Paul. It, it has the pickups in the, in the wood, not on the, the, the pickup guard. Gorgeous. And, and I dropped it and, and, um, and it, and it got a big chip and whatnot. And I was just like really thinking about that. Like, yeah. uh, you know, I've had it for, I bought it like from off 48th street. We used to go into the city when I was 16, 17 years old. And you know, that would be our dream play guitars and you yeah. know, pictures of Jimi Hendrix on the wall. And you know, someday it'll, I'll come home and the door will be busted open and it'll be gone. And, yeah. and that, that's it. You know, I've, I enjoyed those 35 years of it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, you mentioned that uh, it, it reminds me I was uh, when I was living in Middletown, Connecticut, again, another hood location. Um, I was away for a while and uh, my apartment got broken into and my parents called me and they let me know. Um, and, you know, so I had a, a beautiful um, Martin acoustic that was stolen, a Les Paul that was stolen, you know, Mesa boogie amps like, Oof. you know, I was cleaned out. But the funny thing to me is, and that hurt, don't get me wrong, all my electronics. But the first question I asked my mom when she told me was, did they take my books? Right. <laughs> Which they didn't. And I was like, okay, Fine. at least I have my uh, books. I mean, that's just like the, the kind of nerd I am. But yeah, it, it, it happened to me, you know, literally like what you just explained or described. And it was a, a real... Uh, the the more I sat with it over the next several days after finding out, you know, it's a, a, a feeling of deep violation, you know, to know mm, that someone came exactly. in and cleaned house, literally, like, um, real sad. But anyways, you know, not to get too far off traffic, uh, topic, but we're at about the hour mark. W what I always like to do is give my guests, you know, uh, the floor to share anything, uh, Ira, you know, we barely scratch the surface of your book. There is so much more in it. Um, I wish we had more time, but I would love to give you, you know, a, a few minutes. If anything we didn't cover that you would like to share with the audience before we wrap this up. Sure. So our best hope for a happy life is to cultivate loving relationships. And the way to do that is to learn how to be authentic. So in the book, I reframe authenticity in terms of attachment, atonement, attunement, presence, and congruence. Mm -hmm. And we've, we've covered most of them, but I'll just go through them to summarize. So attachment is being aware of our primary attachment dynamics. Atonement or at one minute is releasing our resentments about things we can't change. Attunement is being able to really break bread and sit with other human beings. In the book, I say mirror neurons don't fire via text message. Mm -hmm. So like really being eyeball to eyeball with another person and validating their emotional experiences is, a, is wildly healing. It's, you know, we, that's why we, it's psychotherapy is not just advice through text message. You really have to sit in the same room with another person and show that you empathize with them. Yeah. And the other thing that I say in the book is that one hug equals one million Facebook likes. So we live in this world where we're deluded to, into thinking that we're connecting with other human beings through Instagram, Snapchat, and Facebook, but we're not. We really right. need to shut off the devices and take a walk. Yeah. So, and the fourth component of authenticity is presence, which you and I discussed, meaning um, yoga or meditation are the tools that I use to get present, put me in the zone, and like not let my mind drag me into the non-existent past or not yet existent future. Yeah. And then the fourth component is congruence. And that means, again, this is a credible luxury. We're not running from lions and tigers. We get to take the time to decide who we want to be and what type of lives we want to live. Yeah. And, you know, I start the book with a quote by Andre Gide and um, everyone, you know, espouses it, but, you know, you really have to live it. And it is, it is better to be hated for what you are than to be loved for what you are not. Yeah, I love that. So, well, on that note, I don't think there's a more lovely way to end this conversation. Um, 
Ira, the, the, well, for the audience, the name of the book, again, is How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, A Path to, Awake, or, or a path to Authenticity and Awakening, has a, a really lovely foreword by Catherine, I'm sorry, Catherine Woodward Thomas, and she's the author of Conscious Uncoupling. Ira's website, again, is iraisrael.com. Um, yeah, Ira, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to share your insights, experience, and wisdom with myself and the audience. And uh, just, uh, I'm very grateful to you for your work and, and what you're doing in the world. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure to be talking to you. All right. Well, until next time, Ira, um, have yourself a lovely rest of your day. Thanks. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.